Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Hold the Line. So, I'm going to jump right in with some listener questions this week. We've had a couple of them through by email. So firstly, here's a question from Connor who says, Hi Joe, I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while now. I was just wondering if you have any advice on how someone completely outside the gundog world would get involved in the sport. What would the best approach to getting involved be and what tools would you recommend for learning the ropes? Are there any breeds in particular you would recommend starting off with? I'm quite fond of Spaniels and I think that would be the dog for me. But of course, you don't know what you want until until you're involved. Just curious if you have any recommendations. So, well, there's quite a lot to unpack there. I would say definitely get my book. Well, obviously, I would say that. This little plug there for my book, uh, Force Free Gun Dog Training, The Fundamentals of Success, because I think that really helps you set off on the right path. There's a whole chapter in the book about starting out with sort of general training classes, and I still think that is the best way. So, for example, with my own gundog classes that I run, before people are allowed to start the gundog classes, they first have to have made their way through my indoor classes, which are just um, obedience, but obedience with a sort of gundoggy sort of slant, but not to the degree that it's not useful for a general um, pet owners who don't intend to work their dog. So we'll do things like a whistle recall instead of a verbal recall, for example. But the process of training the recall is exactly the same. We're just using the whistle as the cue instead of the verbal cue. So the thing to say is that the majority of what we call pet dog training is really pretty similar to basic gun dog training. So my advice would be to find some excellent clicker training classes or reward-based classes near you and to take your dog through those as far as you can, progress through all the different levels that they offer and that will give you a really good foundation for going on to begin your gun dog training. Obviously there are little bits of gun dog training stuff that you can be doing between and around and during and all of that but that is a really good starting point and then when you do start your gun dog training outdoors you'll be ready. So your dog will already have learned everything in a much less distracting environment indoors without all the sense of game and all that sort of stuff to distract them. And you'll have more of a chance of being more successful once you move outdoors. So that would be my advice anyway, in terms of just getting started. In terms of getting started um, with competition or assessments, I highly recommend the Gun Dog Club grades, to be honest. They're really um, they're non-competitive. So it's, you don't get to feel too intimidated about competing with other people. You have to meet standards. Um, obviously they're only available 
within the UK, although I think there are also a couple of places outside the UK that are now offering them, but mostly in the UK. So if you don't live in the UK, then you might have to look for another type of Gundog class. But I would caution people against just um, happily going along to their local Gundog class with their baby Gundog puppy on a slip lead, because you will just likely be told how to correct your dog and things like that. And some people have had quite unpleasant experiences in those environments. So I would just recommend against that. Learn how to train your dog first by going, as I said, to a general um, excellent force-free classes, which are not gun dog classes. And that way, when you do turn up at your first gun dog class, even if it is a traditional class, you'll have a dog which is under pretty good control and no one there teaching the class will feel the need to tell you to correct your dog or correct your dog or anything like that because your dog will already be um, under reasonably good control. So that would be my tips there. And then in terms of breeds, I think if you're already drawn towards a particular breed, then that is a good indication of what you should at least explore first. I think, you know, sometimes there can be a bit of a head and heart battle going on. Like you, for some reason that you can't quite put your finger on, are really drawn to a particular breed. And yet for some for some other reason, in terms of, you know, factual, cognitive, it would make more sense to get this sort of breed. Um, there's a, There can be a bit of a battle going on there, basically. Um, and so I think definitely explore all the options. And if your heart still says, oh, I really want a blah, 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 then probably go with that because otherwise you'll always feel a little bit like you didn't quite get the thing that you wanted or the, the type of dog that you wanted. So that would be my recommendation with that one. But also think about the type of work that you want to be doing with your dog. Do you just want to specialize in retrieving? Are you interested mostly in retrieving, you know, precision, drills, casting, lining, directions, handling, all that sort of thing, steadiness? Um, or do you want a dog which can work before the shot, which would be either a Spaniel or a HBR or Vestel dog? So a dog which is going to hunt for you and find the game for you to put it up for you. Do you want that as well? Um, in which case, then you're going to have to make a choice between Spaniels versus versatile dogs or HPRs, depending on um, what you are drawn to there. So, yeah, I think think about what you want in a dog and also where your heart is kind of pulling you as well. So hopefully that is helpful on those questions. Hold the line. And then we have another question, which is actually a really nice one to follow that question up with, because it's sort of questions around the same kind of subjects really so we've got a question from caitlin who says hello joe my name is caitlin and i love hearing all about gun dog training despite having dogs whose genetic makeup is a mystery and a questionable aptitude for the sport but a couple have a solid prey drive which is why i find a lot of gun dog training practices you've suggested extremely useful and i have a question it may be silly to ask but have there been people who have taught or competed in trials with non-sporting breeds or crossbreeds in the gun dog world i know you often mention that a lot of gun dog skills like a retrieve heel etc can be taught to dogs puppies before a person ever steps foot into a workshop or gundog training class but i didn't know if it was something only specific breeds could do strictly speaking so firstly we have to kind of make a distinction between you know what a dog might be able to be trained to do and if a dog is allowed to compete because often the um kennel clubs who run the um uh, trials tests assessments will limit which dogs can be assessed and can enter so usually the dog will have to be kennel club registered if it's a um a field trial or a working test or an official sort of recognized um competition 
And though the dogs will not only have to be kennel club registered, but they'll also have to be a designated breed. So you, you can't enter a kennel club registered chihuahua, for example, um, to run in a retriever trial. So there would have to be a recognized designated breed and you would not be able to enter a crossbreed um, in because uh, it wouldn't be kennel club registered for a start. Um, but also you wouldn't be able to, rec- to, re- to enter a breed which is not a crossbreed, but which is not a breed which is accepted as able to compete in that venue. Does that make sense? Um, so one exception to that, which I want to flag up, is the Gundog Club, which allows any breed to enter any test. So your dog does not have to be Kennel Club registered. Your dog does not even have to be the designated um, subgroup of Gundog. So for example, if you wanted your Spaniel to take grade three retriever, then you could enter your spaniel and grade three retriever. So there's nothing to stop you from um, entering any of the tests. And as I said, your dog doesn't have to be kennel club registered either. So any dog can enter any of the gun dog club tests, assuming that you have access to a gun dog club instructor or assessor. So um, yeah, you want to check out the gun dog club's website for more information on their tests and what is involved. And as I said before, they are generally only in the UK, but there are also a couple of places around outside the UK that are doing it. So check out the Gundal Club's website for a full list of instructors and assessors. Um, But yeah, besides that, most other forms of assessment or competition will limit who can enter. Now, this is not to say that you shouldn't train your dog to do gun dog skills, because there are lots of shoots where you will find all kinds of dogs running about and working, beating. You'll find terriers, you'll find collies, sometimes even German shepherds. And, you know, you'll find any sort of dog because all they really want are dogs to put up game. And dogs put up game even without trying to, just by running about being dogs, basically. So um, often shoots will... um, you know, be quite flexible in terms of who, you know, the dogs they want, as long as they're under basic control and they're not going to go completely AWOL. And as long as they're not going to damage game, then they're usually very welcome. Um, so that's not to say that, you know, your dog can't be involved in gun dog work if they are not a gun dog. They can be. And equally, there's another point to make, which is that, as I always say, gun dog training is just about having a dog which is under excellent control out and about in the real world. So if your dog can walk at heel past, I don't know, a pheasant flushing from a bush, then probably your dog can walk at heel past a table of cakes at the village fate or whatever. So, you know, your dog is going to be under really good control because you have proofed everything to such a high degree of distraction that it is going to just serve you really well in all kinds of other situations. And I think particularly in today's society where we are seeing more and more dogs in the world generally, just like human population is exploding. I think dog population is exploding because people want dogs. Um, And so we are all kind of coming into contact with each other more. Dogs are meeting other dogs more when they're out and about. Dogs are meeting people more. And they're just more chances and opportunities for these meetings to go badly for one reason or another. And the result of that in turn is restrictions. So, you know, dogs have to be kept on a lead, blah, blah, blah. So obviously we don't want that. We want to be able to enjoy freedom as dog owners to exercise and train our dogs wherever we possibly can. And so the way to pursue that end is to help as many people as we can have well-trained dogs so that we avoid these um, unfavorable outcomes when dogs meet other dogs or dogs meet people. Um, and I think gun dog training has a huge amount to offer when it comes to that. So that's my kind of take on that. 
But yeah, definitely you can get involved in gun dog training, gun dog work. And do you know, as I always said again, that basic gun dog training is just basic pet dog training, really. There are a few little things that we can twiddle with and make more gun dog specific. So we can have our whistle recall cue instead of the verbal recall key. Obviously, we do need a verbal recall key to function as well because we might not always be able to get our whistle in our mouth in time or we might lose our whistle or whatever. So have a verbal one as well. We then will have a sit whistle cue. And I find it's extra important to make sure the dog is sitting straight at our side facing forwards and to implement that from the very beginning and not to accept these sits where the dog's kind of angled towards us with their butt facing out um, not straight, as it were. I find that if we accept those early on, they become really difficult to train out and get rid of these kind of non-straight sits. So I do a lot of um, work early on, making sure the dog is sitting straight at your side and that kind of thing. But apart from all of that, I'd be doing that anyway, whatever dog I had, apart from all of that, it's just about the same stuff, really. So yeah, do feel free to get involved in gun dog training and gun dog work, whatever breed of dog you have but you will be limited in terms of the venues that you can compete in. Hold the line. So I then had a question, which was, what products do I recommend? Basically is what the question was. I was going to summarize a much longer question with that. But yes, generally in terms of gun dog training products and products that you might want to train your dog with, what brands or makes or specific products do I particularly recommend? So I'm a bit of a dog product aficionado and have tried all kinds of different things. So I can definitely give you some tips on this one. So let's start with dummies or bumpers as they are known in many parts of the world. So my recommendation, let's just put aside particular brands for a minute and just think about um, the color for a start. So the color, I would always recommend white dummies for quite a lot of your dog's training. Your dog needs white dummies for marking because seeing the white flash in the air is going to help the dog look at the dummy. And when you start your marking, you should start it on very, very short grass. So the dog can also see the dummy when it hits the floor. And that's going to help teach them to keep their eyes fixed to that spot and run to that spot. So white dummies and also for when you set your blinds, it's going to help if the dog can see the white dummy on the floor to help them hold that line with confidence to the thing that they're running to. When you start to use a white fence post, which we'll get onto, maybe if I remember to get onto it in a minute, um, then that is going to replace the dummy as it were. So by that point, the dog sees the white fence post and they go to the white fence post. And that means it can be visible from a greater distance, which in turn means that it's kind of less important what color the dummies are on the floor because the dog's just going to the fence post. But still, I think it helps if there are white dummies. Um, the only times when I would use dummies that are not white is when I'm trying to get the dog to use their nose. So when I'm trying to teach the hunt cue, the sort of lost, lost or there cue, or some people use a whistle beep, beep, instead. So if you want to teach the dog to hunt in that particular area, you're teaching them to use their nose. And for those exercises, I would be deliberately choosing dummies that they're not going to find very easily, dummies which are quite small and green or orange, so they camouflage with the um, foliage because dogs see orange the same way they see green. Because their kind of um, perception of colours is different to ours. So, um, yeah, white dummies. And when we get on to materials, so... I have tried white canvas dummies, but the problem is that because they are fabric, they tend to very rapidly stop being white because they pick up mud and get really dirty quickly. So they're not very practical. And they're also quite heavy. Like to carry around six one pound white dummies is just a lot of stuff you're lugging around. So I tend to use the rubber 
bumpers or plastic bumpers slash dummies. And these originally are from the US or North America. That's where the kind of rubber bumper idea came from. And that's kind of um, UK conventionally had the canvas canvas dummy idea um, or Europe and um, North America had the rubber bumper idea. But I like North American white rubber bumpers, as you might have concluded from all of this. So in terms of brands, there is a brand called Airflow, which I really quite like because they're BPA free. So if you think about it, this thing is a thing your dog is going to be frequently putting in their mouth and frequently bringing back to you. So if there is BPA in the dummy or bumper, they're going to be kind of exposed to that every time they carry out a retrieve, which frankly is quite frequently if you're training a dog a lot. So the Airflow uh, dummies or bumpers are BPA free. And they kind of have a little dent in the middle of them. So they're kind of shaped so that they go in in the middle, which allegedly encourages the dog to hold them by the center. I'm not sure if I quite find that. I do sometimes find the dogs just pick them up however they want to pick them up rather than using them, picking them up in the middle. But the BPA thing appeals to me and they're nice um, dummies apart from that. So I recommend those. There's also DT Systems who make a dummy called Soft Mouth Trainer, which I really like as well. That one I don't think is BPA free. So those would be my recommendations for dummies. And you probably need about six to start with. That's probably going to enable you to have like a back pile, a left pile, a right pile, and to put a couple at each pile. You might need a few more than that. If you think about it, the more piles that you have and the more dummies that you have at each pile, the less time you have to walk forwards and backwards and replenish your pile at, at the at the pole. So it kind of depends if you think about it, I think you should imagine having at least a back post, a left post and a right post. And then think about how many dummies you're going to want to put at each post when you're doing your three-handed casting, your T-drills and those kind of exercises. So think about that when you buy them. Um, all right, that's enough about dummies. Uh, treat pouches. I have a strong recommendation for treat pouches, which is the trainer's pouch. I just don't know any other treat pouch that comes anywhere near it. And I know they can be pretty expensive, but they're an investment and they are just brilliant. So the trainer's pouch is made in Australia. It's an Australian product and it comes in two sizes. You can get a pretty large one. In fact, one of the largest treat pouches that I know is a kind of regular pouch. And then they kind of have a, a what they call a pocket pouch, which is a smaller version. I really like the larger version for any sort of long class. So if I were going to like a one hour class, I definitely want to have the bigger version. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor, but I don't have a sponsor. So instead, I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. 
And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. If I were just taking my dog out by themselves on a daily basis for our regular training, then probably the smaller version would be fine. So it just kind of depends on how many treats you want to be able to take with you and how long you're going to be out away from the house for and training for. So um, things about the trainer's pouch and why it's so great. It's made of silicon, so you can put it in the dishwasher. You don't have to put it in the washing machine like you do with all the fabric pouches, which get all stinky and gummy and stuck together. But it's not practical to be sticking your treat pouch in the washing machine every day, frankly. So um, it is practical to put it in the dishwasher every day because we all run our dishwashers every day anyway, most of us. So highly recommend it for that reason. Um, I'd also recommend it because it doesn't fall off. So I know there are other silicon pouches on the market. Can you tell I've tried everything here? But there are, but they come with little clips that they kind of clip on your belt or they clip on your pocket of your um, trousers or pants. And you can tell I'm bilingual here, by the way. That's the trousers and pants things you get that. I'm I'm totally with it. Um, Bilingual. Anyway. um, (laughs) Yeah, so they clip on your trousers or your pants. And um, the problem with that is they fall off quite easily, especially if you've got a dog who jumps up at you, for example, and knocks them off, then the whole pouch will come on the floor, which basically reinforces the dog for jumping up, frankly. So um, what else about the little ones? Yeah, they don't hold many treats because they're pretty small. And generally, they just don't. Yeah, you're always kind of worried if I bend over and pick up this poo, are the treats going to fall out the top or is the whole treat pouch going to fall off my trousers slash pants? Um, (laughs) So... Yeah, this, the the trainer's pouches come with this belt. They have a really kind of durable, um, it's almost like a, a, a trade person's belt, really. It's so durable. And it snaps with a really firm snap. And, you know, I have previously have not been a fan of wearing treat pouches around my waist on a belt. I just have found that a bit naff in the past with other brands of treat pouch. And so at first I was a bit skeptical of this aspect of the trainer's pouch. I was like, mm, am I really going to like it because it goes? it's another one with a belt? Um, but I gave it a go and you know what? It really, really works. So you can put the belt over your coat. So if you wear like a wax jacket or a big bulky coat, you can put the pouch over that around your waist. Um, it actually quite helps the, gives you some shape. It helps the, um, aesthetic appeal of your bulky barber jacket, let's just say. Um, and you can also, in the summer, you know, when you're not wearing your, your big coat, you can just put it around your hips and wear it there instead. So it's just really I don't know. It's a brilliant product. I I have not found anything else like it. And I would highly recommend that if you want to use a treat pouch, you check out the trainer's pouch. So that's my top tip for treat pouches. But I would also just add here that before I found the trainer's pouch, there weren't any treat pouches that I liked enough to use. And so I wasn't using any treat pouches. And what I was using instead was two Addis beakers. And you can get those from Amazon, A-double-D-I-S. They're just Addis beakers with a screw top lid. And I would have one in each coat pocket. So I would have my kind of regular normal treats in my left coat pocket in this Addis Beaker. And I would have my recoil treats in my right coat pocket because in that order as well, by the way, because the dog is walking at heel on my left side. And so I want my treats in my left pocket on my left side. And so the recall treats went in the other pocket. And so that was kind of what I was doing. And I still recommend that if you are working around people who are not using treats, 
around more traditional minded people who might um, not think so well of you if they saw you with a big trainer's pouch around your waist, then I still highly recommend the Adder speakers because no one looking at you can see that you have them in there, that they're kind of completely invisible um, to the naked eye, as it were. So um, yeah, I just recommend those. Two, so, all right, harnesses. Now, this is a huge subject, harnesses. Now, I think I've had at least one episode before, if not two episodes before on the podcast talking about harnesses. So I would highly recommend that you go back and look at earlier podcast episodes where I have covered covered this in detail. I think one episode was just about harnesses and nothing else. So do go back and check that out. Uh, but yeah, harnesses, my two kind of recommendations for harnesses would be either the Dog Copenhagen harness, which is made in Denmark, and is there's a, there's a they make two harnesses actually they make the comfort fit air and then they make another one and it's the comfort fit air which i would recommend so one one harness they make is is a kind of bigger harness and that's got more material on the dog's back and on the dog's belly and the other harness has less material and i recommend the one that's got less material just on the basis of the recent harness research which came out which suggested that the greater the surface area of the harness covering the dog's body the more it affected and impeded in some ways the dog's um, movement. So in that respect, it was not to do with whether it was a Y-shaped harness or a T-shaped harness or anything else whatsoever. It was purely down to how much of the dog's body surface area, as it were, is covered by the harness as to how much it affects their movement. So for that reason, I would try to avoid harnesses that cover, you know, those ones that have a lot of material, a lot of fabric, or that cover a lot of the dog's body. So um, yeah, so perfect fit is another recommendation that I would make too. Um, I like those because you can basically fit them to fit your dog perfectly because you can choose the three different parts. You can choose the top part of the dog, the front, sorry, not the top part of the dog. You can choose your dog's, <laughs> the color of your dog's coat. No, um, you can choose the top part of the harness, the Y-shaped front of the harness and the sort of T-shaped belly bit, belly strap of the harness. And those three different bits you can select so that you end up with a harness which fits your own particular individual dog perfectly, hence perfect fit. So I recommend those as well. I also like the fact that they're kind of soft and fleecy material. I think especially if you have like a breed which has got really short hair, um, like Weimaraners, like GSPs, um, you know, that sort of really, really short coat, that the soft fleecy harnesses probably feel a bit more comfortable for the dog. So um, yeah, those would be my two top tips for harnesses. Clickers. So... I don't actually have any preferences for clickers. That one's going to be really quick. I don't have any preferences for clickers. Just get a thing that makes a click noise. And if your click things make different, slightly different click noises, that's perfectly fine. The dog will adjust to that. Uh, long lines. I don't have a particular brand recommendation for long lines, but I would say that I highly recommend a biothane long line, which is like a rubbery long line. And these are just much, much superior to the fabric long lines because the biothane long lines don't get wet. Um, in that they don't hold water. I mean, obviously they get wet if you put them through a puddle or something, but they don't hold water. So they don't get stinky and they don't get moldy. And, you know, you don't have like, like um, having to put them in a plastic bag and then you take them out, they've got mold all over them. And they tend not to get leaves and twigs stuck to them because they don't have um, fabric, which catches that kind of stuff. So they kind of flow a bit more easily. So in all kind of respects, I really like the biothane long lines a lot. And if you are in North America, Permatac long lines, um, you want to look those up 
if they're still existing because that was my very first long line, long line I got. We couldn't get biofane here in the UK and I came across Permatech out in North America and I went through some <clears throat> really convoluted process to import a couple of Permatech long lines and they were really good. So I recommend them too. But yeah, as long as it's biofane, it's that rubbery stuff. That's what you want. One, white fence posts. So yeah, you will need white fence posts or actually you could just have white poles as long as you've got something that sticks in the ground and that is white. That's what you're looking for so that the dog can see it easily. And these will be where you will put your dummy piles at the base of your white fence posts so that you can practice your blinds to the white fence posts and your sort of three-handed casting and T-drills and all the rest of it. So think about the white fence post as being like a giant white dummy. It's basically saying, here is where it is. And the reason that it needs to say that is because when you're at a distance from your um, dummies and from your pile, your dog, won't, your dog won't be able to see the dummies if they are flat on the ground once you get to a certain distance away because the grass will just cover it or the terrain will cover them. And then your dog won't be able to be running to something with confidence, which they can see. So that's where we use the white fence post. Think of it as like a giant white dummy that says, this is where it is. So your dog can run to it from a distance with confidence. So um you can get electric fence posts, by the way, from most sort of farm stores or agricultural stores, that sort of place that you can sometimes order them online as well. They come in different heights. You probably don't need a really, really tall one. Uh, I think it's the height below that, that you'll probably need. So just think about that as well. And leads. So leads, I don't really have like a major uh, preference for leads, but there is you know, a couple, there are a couple of leads in my bo- ginormous box of leads I have, which I come back to again and again and sort of find myself pulling out again and again for, for like the next dog. Um, and so I must deduce that these are more useful than others. And I really like the comfy leads, which you can get in the UK. I don't know if you can get them, probably not in North America, but they're spelled K-U-M-F-I, comfy. And there's just lots of different variety of leads, different lengths of leads, um, different widths of leads, but generally they're really well made and they last forever. And I've got a couple of comfy leads, which I think are probably 15 years old now, and I'm still using them. So they're just really, you know, durable and, um, useful and versatile in terms of how you can use them. So I highly recommend those two bags, dummy bags. Um, this probably isn't essential piece of equipment dummy bag, but you will need somewhere to put all your dummies and to carry your stuff about with you when you're going out training. So a dummy bag is probably a good thing. I really like the Fire Dog brand and their dummy bags. I find they look really stylish and they're really durable as well. So I really like that stuff too. Um, I think that is probably everything I can think of in terms of equipment for recommendations that I can give you. But anyway, I hope that is useful. And I've given you some good tips there for stuff to pursue. By the way, I don't have any kind of um, investment in any of those products they've recommended. I do sell the trainers um, pouches and the dog Copenhagen harnesses, but I don't sell them to people that I don't teach in person just because of the shipping and the postage and having to go to the post office and all that sort of stuff. I just don't get into any of that. So I just sell them to people that I work with in person. So there's no, no kind of incentive for me to recommend them to you guys everywhere really. Um, but yeah, so these are just my top tips in terms of what I personally find useful with my dogs. So that's all for this week and see you next time.